Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Take a sip of water, grab your chapstick. The second floor of the AC building. <laughs> it's election shock therapy, guys. We're back. We're, we're back. here. And we're cold, right? It's very we're cold. We're cold. <laughs> we're not. Uh, we're not ready to. Um, what is it with people delivering responses to the state of the union address and having mouth problems? <laughs> it's a thing. So a couple years ago, um, Joe Kennedy was Bar- very shiny. Barack Obama gave the state of the union address. And Marco Rubio responded and drank approximately 68 gallons of water during his response. <laughs> uh, this year, uh, uh, after Donald Trump's State of the Union address, uh, Joe Kennedy gave the response and apparently had kissed a giant jar of Vaseline right before <laughs> giving, the, giving the response. Can we get someone with normal mouth issues to give us the response? Or is there the something address? about the response that like necessitates that? You just have yeah. to like have something, some moisture. People have to remember it somehow. <laughs> It's, hey, we're still talking here. about it's it. It's real dry. Yeah. Real dry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. like, don't they have makeup artists to like you know, do a light Apparently check or something? Apparently not. <laughs> this is, well, maybe this is, is this the issue, that these are just too low budget? We need to like go in for some some decent matte lip balm or something? Yeah, I don't know. I, don't know. I almost wonder if it's the opposite. If it's like if there's so much pressure put on it that like people are just too nervous and there's always some kind of weird tick that happens as a right. result. So it's just sort of overproduced yeah. just because there's so much focus on it. Do you, do you have a if you if you had to give the response to the union uh, address? What would be your weird tick? <laughs> Probably whatever our usual weird tick. Yeah, is. I don't yeah. know. You should We're ask our well students. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Too much, like like in and this because this is something that I do. I'll I'll talk and I'll just uh, interject because I listen when I listen to myself talk. I'll say something and I'll say right, mm-hmm. right. Like I'll I'll do mm-hmm. yeah. I just yeah. Did it. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll do that. That would and that would get. Um, uh, yeah, that would that would get reproduced and memed in bad ways. And, yeah. <laughs> I I would probably go off on some uh, in, irrelevant tangent for a little bit. Like I think that's something that pops up in my student evals is that is that I'm easily I'm sort of like a a dog with the squirrels. Like I'm easily distracted to go <laughs> to go off on the on, on the irrelevant tangent. So I'd be like, okay, now the president said this about taxes. Oh, but you know what's really interesting about taxes is. <laughs> <laughs> So you like basically the teleprompter would stop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, maybe you do. You do a Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. I would, as listeners of this podcast well know, uh, I say um and uh a lot, and Mm -hmm. I'm sure Mm -hmm. that my response would mostly just me be saying um and uh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. my thing. I think you would also drop like uh, of the people in this room, you'd be the most likely to drop like five words that nobody knows what they mean, and you'd say them very confidently. And so, like that, I think that would actually be the the joke would be like. Like really, yeah. obs- be, what is to to us civilians like obscure words? There'd be there'd be people walking around t-shirts that just say hashtag recondite, right? Exactly. Like yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, so is there significant? And I, I, I shouldn't say it. What is the significance of being chosen? And it may not be a positive thing of being chosen to be the one who gives the response. I heard a lot of uh, sort of talking about this, but uh, mm-hmm. in, if we look at at political history, is is this? A meaningful thing is this a graveyard mm-hmm. of political careers? Is it a mixed bag? It's it's a mixed bag. It, it's yeah. not that meaningful. A yes, it's often treated as a debut 
or a primetime slot for someone to make a name for themselves. But where it's other than the political chattering class, it's not clear that American voters actually pay that much attention to responses mm-hmm. and that voter that people can actually make a name for themselves. I have were no, there na- were there ever national careers launched off of it? Or? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Some like that were certainly enhanced, some that were probably slightly harmed, but it didn't seem to really hurt Marco Rubio's chances in, in no. 2016. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I'd say that's pretty much right. It's yep. I mean part and part of that's a reflection too of the fact that the State of the Union is increasingly irrelevant. Um, and right. so the response itself also is is increasingly irrelevant. Now, mm-hmm. is there a thing in the State of the Union where um, it's kind of like a, a, a like a band who has their band name in a song. Like, where you're, are you not allowed to say the State of the Union in the State of the Union? Address? Oh no! In fact, it's required. Oh uh, really? Okay. Almost it's almost every uh, president whilst whilst giving the State of the Union address will say the State of our Union is strong. Right. Huh. Yeah, that line almost always makes it in. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Clearly, clearly, I don't watch these things closely. <laughs> that, I, I would. My goal as a speechwriter would be let's not mention that. Let's not use that turn of phrase. because oh, it's, it, it's like saying the, t- the title of the movie as yeah, the line yeah. of dialogue in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Like that. This will that's be our clearly what would be Day. in the trainer or in the trailer, right? <laughs> will, and and, and, and uh, she will not be the last Jedi. That's right. That's I right. Would, I wonder how many um, overwrought uh, speechwriters have considered using a word other than strong because that's the word they always use. Is okay. Strong. Is um. You know, like the state of our union is dope. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Um, I wish it wasn't always. Everything st- is awesome. I wish yeah. it wasn't always strong because that would be a great graphic of like over time. What is the word that gets right. used? Mm. Like that. The really state funny. of our union is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's frightening. So what? What? It, so if you were, if if you had to give one word to the end of the sentence, the state of our union is. Mm. What would you? What would it be? Hmm. Divided is probably too easy. No, but yeah. it's a good answer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If we're being honest, right? Fraught, maybe. Um, complicated. <laughs> Fractious. Okay. Mm, Fractious. Mm. See, there's Chris pulling out the big words. That's again. right. Yeah. Fractious. Nice. But um, I brought you all here today Ooh. as we reconvene <laughs> from our January hiatus. Uh, first of all, to recognize that one of our members looks a whole lot more relaxed than the rest of our <laughs> and does not have not a meeting. Sam, why are you here? I'm, a, well, uh, I'm here because I want to go to a meeting after this. And re- actually, <laughs> wait, 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 no, no, stop it. No. Cast you out in the name of Jesus. <laughs> no, 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 no. In, in truth, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm here because I want a podcast. Yeah. Like, uh, and. Uh, yeah. But why are you able to be why here? Are you able to why time? am I able to be here? Because I'm on sabbatical. Yeah, <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Sam's on sabbatical! <laughs> yeah. And yet so, he's here on yeah, campus. Yeah. So this is how Sam chooses to spend his season of rest and recuperment, <laughs> is to spend it here with us podcasting. I do need to say, because people make fun of me for stuff like that, yesterday was the first day of sabbatical that I totally just burned. Like, it was great. Right. I just, like, stayed home. I yeah. did stuff around the house. I played some video games. It was kind of great. <laughs> like, I was just like, I am going to... Because I always... I, I, we had people over for the Super Bowl, and, I, and, and usually I feel like... I feel... Um, like, I always wish that that next day was a day off. So I decided at halftime, I'm like, I am going to stay home tomorrow, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to work. And it was it was really nice. delightful. Yeah, but yeah. by the end of the day, I was itching to yeah. do something. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. I, well, I brought you here. I brought you out of retirement, or out of sabbatical at least, <laughs> to talk about burgers. Burgers? Mm. Now, not, unfortunately, actual burgers. Although, if we ever wanted to launch a food podcast on, That's this, where we would on start, this channel, yeah. I think we'd start with burgers. <laughs> if we're going to talk about burgers, we should say that the Twin Cities are home to the Juicy Lucy. The Juicy Lucy. Where it was founded. So. Yes. 
For our listeners who don't know that, that's which, important. Which, which is a burger plus a, um, an incipient uh, uh, second-degree burn. Yeah. Just yeah. waiting yeah. to happen. Right. Pretty much. If you know what a Juicy Lucy is, it's the cheese inside the burger, which becomes ba- basically molten lava cheese. Mm. And the trick is to somehow eat this burger without having the cheese run down your face and, and scald you. Um, it's good. It's good and dangerous. <laughs> no, the burgers I'm talking about, and, and I, I'm saying this mostly to get to like work through it and get it out of my head, is that one of the words that was so overused in social media and in news reporting and Twitter this last year was nothing burger. Uh, I don't know if you heard this, came across this, but basically if you wanted to have a funnier way of saying something is meaningless, you can call it a nothing burger. Um, sure, why not? But it got me thinking about what stories are currently in in the zeitgeist in, currently in our in um across coming across people's radar which we should be treating as nothing burgers which stories should we be ignoring which stories should we be paying attention to and maybe from the perspective of political scientists here what stories are people not paying enough attention to so i ask you here to nominate either a nothing burger a something burger or a should be something burger <laughs> With extra cheese. <laughs> You're reinforcing my decision not to be on Twitter, by the way. But, yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're only missing extra um, extra extra anxiety. Right. Yeah. yeah, which I don't really need. Yeah. Um, I think, well, one of the obvious should be something burgers that we probably should be continuing. Should be. So, so this is Andy's nomination for the something, something we should be paying more attention to. Yeah, and I think we have paid attention to it, but it's already because of our short, short-term memory. It's already not at the center of the conversation is just sort of see where this tax bill goes. I mean, that's a huge structural change. And so in terms of all the things that have happened in the first year of the Trump administration, um, this is the one that's actually law. Um, it's, it's changed the way we structure our tax code. Um, in important ways, it is going to put more money in people's pockets. Um, a dollar fifty, according which, to Paul Ryan. According to Paul Ryan, at least a dollar fifty. Did you catch that? Yes. That was a tweet. Yeah. Yes. That was a tweet. Yes. 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 Since so was, deleted. Um, so you know, and, and it's. I mean, like, let's be honest. It's going to put more money in in the pockets of people who are already rich, right? Um, yeah, sure. So disproportionately, they're going to do better. And the question is whether this is going to help the economy um, or whether it's going to make it overheat. I mean, I think there's a lot of, of real questions. There's also, I think, a huge question what it's going to do to the deficit long term. Mm-hmm. I mean, the deficit um, is likely to be harmed by this. And so um, I think that's something we need to keep a, an eye on um, going forward and seeing sort of where does this go. Um, and that's going to be a slow unrolling story. Because, I mean, not all the changes are taking effect this year. Some of them are next year. Um, so it's you know we'll have to kind of keep an eye on that long term. But even as we go to other stories, I think you have to keep coming back and looking and saying, what is what are the long-term effects of this? Andy, I know you're a political scientist and not a market analyst, am, but the market yes. has absolutely tanked over the last couple of days yep. um, after growing steadily for the last year or so. Mm-hmm. But the, it's tanked so badly, we've basically lost all the gains since tw- in, of 2018 and 2017. Yep. Um, any relationship bet- between legislation and, and uh, the market? Well, I'm not a market analyst, as you say, um, but I, I was talking to friends who are more knowledgeable about econ- economics than I am. And I, one of the concerns about this tax bill is that it could make it too hot, right? That it was just – the economy was already sort of charging along, almost you know, almost overheating, and this might lead it to actually overheating. So I'm wondering if that's kind of partly what's going on is that people are starting to realize, like, ooh, you know, this is getting too hot. So – I don't know. I think one of the things to take away from this, though, is a reminder of what the president can and cannot do. Um, Donald Trump has been taking credit for the rising market and the fact that it's just been growing, growing, growing. He's very silent right now as it's tanking about 
you know, his response how that works. Um, yeah, it is funny how that works, right? But it, I think neither of those is really quite accurate. It's not exactly his fault entirely that this is happening. True. Any more than it was to his credit that the other was happening, right? I think we tend to overestimate the ability of the president to regulate those things. The president does play a role. Certainly his tax bill is going to play a role um, in what that looks like long term. But it's also the case that, you know, a lot of this is out of his control. And so just as he... He probably doesn't deserve all the blame for this any more than he deserved the credit that he's been claiming for the last year. Sure. Now, historically, the uh, are are politicians who choose to live by the economy do they or by the stock market do they historically die by the economy? I don't realize like sometimes we can throw some of those historical examples out, but mm-hmm. but I mean if you if you plant your flag in a strong economy, does that come back to bite you when? Uh, when the economy is not as strong? Or? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. But usually it's not the stock market. Okay. The right. stock market tends to only affect a small portion of Americans, yep. people who actually have money to invest in the stock market. And even though a large portion of Americans have 401ks, those are usually out of our direct purview, unless you're a retiree. From most, of, most of the time you can afford to ignore that a little bit, be a little, more in, a little less sensitive to market fluctuations. So, so what are the economic indicators we should be looking at? I'm glad you asked. Um <laughs> Uh, coming up to elections, uh, the economic indicators that appear to be most correlated with electoral success of incumbents are things like the consumer con- consumer confidence. So consumer confidence is a way of measuring if consumers believe the economy is going to get better or worse in, 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 uh, over the next chunk of time. How is that measured? Um, polling, survey? actually okay. asking consumers. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and there's some and that we don't usually just ask them how confident are you, although we do that too. But we also ask them things like how likely are you to buy a new refrigerator in the next twelve months? How likely are you to buy a new car in the next twelve months? How likely are you to move, change jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, and better consumer confidence is correlated with the incumbent winning re-election. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And and unemployment rates unemployment. often relate as well. I mean the. Um, higher unemployment rates make it less likely incumbents will win. Yep. Um, and, of course, obviously the changes matter, right? So if it's trending in the right direction, which probably helped Barack Obama in 2012, um, Ronald Reagan in 1984, right, um, then people are going to be more confident, right? Um, so, but it higher hurts. So where have those numbers been over the course of 2017? Well, this is interesting. Uh, those numbers have generally been very good, mm-hmm. which would cause you to think that Donald Trump should be doing well. In some ways, he's underperforming his economic numbers. Yes. The economy has been running very well, and his support has generally been quite low. Uh, in theory, that's because there are plenty of people who normally would support the president under these circumstances, but are off-put by Donald Trump's statements, speeches, mm-hmm. other kinds of political actions. That Perhaps a more generic Republican president who didn't tweet uh, some of the things that Donald Trump is tweeting would probably be doing better. That's the, that's the hypothesis, at least. Does, does, that, does that consumer confidence number, tend, does it tend to fluctuate? Does it, I mean, like um, over time, like, like, like is, it, um, is it generally strong? Does it, does it ebb and flow? It ebbs and flows uh, slightly out of sync with the actual performance of the economy. Okay. It, so it lags the actual performance mm-hmm. of the economy. So the economy dips in one quarter, we would expect consumer confidence to dip the subsequent quarter. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and where do we find a number like that? If, again, if we're a civilian who's like, "Oh, I'd, I'd like to start tracking that," where, like, where <laughs> to know whether you're, you should feel confident or not? Uh, well, no, I'm just sort of curious. Like, <laughs> the cons- consumer confidence is is one of those things that's well known enough that oftentimes the media will pick it up. Uh, yeah. Like the Wall Street Journal, New York mm-hmm. Times, those kinds of organizations. So. Um, 
I would say if you wanted to follow this, if you just do a Google News search for consumer confidence or okay. consumer price index, okay. uh, these both of those numbers will should pop up pretty readily with recent news stories okay. about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, I mean, the, <clears throat> the recent stock market volatility, um, I would almost nominate that one for a nothing burger. Um, mm. Yeah, and just and just uh, part of the reason for that being that uh, a number, you know, from what from what I've seen, a number of folks have thought that the market was due for yeah. um, some some downtrend anyway. So this is not really sort of you know it's it's sort of breaking news to if you haven't been sort of watching, but it's really been somewhat expected. Um, right. And not only that, I mean, the market is always volatile at different times; it doesn't constantly go up. And so right. even though these have been pretty substantial losses. Um, some of those have already been regained, and it's not—it's um, not totally clear that this is that this is a catastrophe um, right. in any sense. Um, obviously, some people who are very wealthy are probably losing some money on Wall Street, but um, but that's probably not um, an enormously substantial story—at least not yet. Mm-hmm. So. A lot of those losses are paper losses; they're not. Um, assuming the market evens out, they can expect to regain a lot of right. that right. Exactly. wealth. Right. Yeah. So. Right. Um, Sam, I didn't. I didn't ask you. Did, did you have an, a burger to bring to us? I uh, I, I don't. Um, I'm I'm here to listen, Chris. Right. <laughs> He's here to learn. He's here to eat the, the one. The, the, so the other one that I've uh, and obviously, I mean, the, the elephant in the room is some of the stuff with the Nunes memo and Trump's reaction. That's my to nothing that. burger. Yeah, so I'm going to leave that one alone. But right. The other one, and this is one that I've been. Uh, I've read a couple of uh, stories on this, and that is some of the and. I'm tempted to say that this looks like a nothing burger, but I'm not sure. And that is, I've seen a number of stories, including the uh, Time Magazine cover that just arrived at my house, um, is about uh, the changing stance of the, of the United States with nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, on the one hand, obviously that seems like a fairly substantial story. So that seems like uh, something you should pay attention to, just because normally the U.S. policy has been to uh, towards disarmament and lowering the number yeah. of nuclear weapons uh, worldwide. And that seems to be changing, especially mm-hmm. with... Um, some of the recent statements say we want to make nuclear weapons more, you know, quote-unquote usable. Um, that seems like a pretty substantial change. On the other hand, um, I'm wondering to what extent uh, that's actually just posturing, um, and particularly with uh, Russia releasing what looks like perhaps sort of a, just a doctored, um, you know, submarine tor- nuclear weapon torpedo. Um, I'm wondering if this is more more posturing than it is actual um, change, and obviously that's not my area of expertise. But my my initial reaction to this was to be was to be fairly concerned. But as I thought more about it, I was wondering if that was actually the right reaction. So, um, especially especially since the the Russian. Uh, so anyway, so just to say real quick, the Russians have released um, uh, what appear to be design schematics of some sort um, for basically a nuclear missile that wouldn't be fired through the air. It's a torpedo that you fire under the water that goes very very deep, so that it can't be intercepted, and basically it would have a enormous payload that would be enough to basically um, literally sink a coastal city into the sea. Um, And essentially, there's now some questions Mm. as to whether this is actually just um, basically clip art that they blew up to make it look really big and wait, 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 wait. so clip art i'm picturing the little, <laughs> I'm picturing the little, micros- the little microsoft paper clip appearing says, it looks like you're trying to decimate the world exactly right yeah exactly right. so you know, so maybe, having fun late at night. yeah so maybe this is all just sort of posturing and it's actually not you know putin was going to be trying to scare us anyway and so maybe it's not that big big of news for us to worry about so i don't know so that's not so that's sort of my 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 que- that's that's, yeah. that's sort of my question i'm not sure where to put that one um initially i was saying i, I thought it was something now i'm wondering if it actually is so 
Well, let me put a little bit. Let me put a little lettuce and tomato and pickle on your nothing burger here, and try and make it a little something. Um, the capacity of a um, of a seaborne uh, nuclear uh, nuclear weapon. Yes, there's not a lot of testing of this. It's not clear how destructive these could be. City leveling is certainly problematic because not only are you bringing in. Uh, you're bringing in not not uh, you're bringing in geography as well as ocean, oceanic uh, variants. Um, some cities might be more vulnerable to such an attack than others would be. Uh, coastline and even the actual foundational rock that that cities are on would certainly affect the capacity, destructive capacity of of a weapon in those scenarios. So the variance is huge, and I don't even want to speculate on that. But what I can say with some level of, of, of greater certainty is that although Russia over the last two decades as its economy has contracted and as it has moved out of the Cold War has spent less in general on its military compared to the Cold War, but what it has spent just as much on is maintaining an up-to-date nuclear arsenal. And its nuclear arsenal has gotten smaller over the course of the 70s and 80s and 90s, even in the 2000s, the United States and Russia have undertaken a, a long-term project of reducing the number of nuclear warheads that each one has and the number of warheads that each one has as a, are, are, that are active. But even in that time, both countries have compensated for having fewer warheads by making those warheads uh, more uh, potentially useful. Not necessarily bigger, but able to be more likely to be delivered precisely, more likely to be merved. So multiple uh, reentry vehicles and able to, to use them in, in a variety of different kinds of ways. One step th that Russia has taken in recent years is to make smaller warheads. The ostensible reason for having smaller warheads is that they're more precise. You're limiting the number of civilian casualties. It also thereby, because you're limiting the number of civilian casualties, in theory increases the likelihood that you might be willing to use one as a counterforce mm -hmm. measure to, to use on the enemy's military, for example. Right. What, tr what the Trump administration is proposing is basically mirroring or matching what the Putin administration in Russia has, has done, is to develop a number of smaller, more tactical nuclear weapons that they could use against enemy counterforces. And some argue that that doesn't really change deterrence, that by mm -hmm. matching Russia, we're just basically matching nuclear deterrence for nuclear deterrence, and this decreases the likelihood that either side would use it in the first place. Others, and I would listen to an to a, uh, interview with Ken Schultz, but others have argued that, no, actually, this is reducing deterrence overall, because anytime you make nuclear weapons potentially more useful and incur fewer civilian casualties, you're actually courting the risk that one side or the other will decide the calculus points towards using them. All that to say, the uh, just because the president wants smaller nukes doesn't mean that we immediately change the deterrence calculus. Uh, there's a procurement process, which is quite long. It'll be towards the end of the Trump presidency, either his first term or possibly his second, before you get that kind of arsenal he's requesting. Mm -hmm. and, and even then, the uh, Strategic Missile Command has to integrate those kinds of missiles into their, their standing uh, missile doctrine. And most of our missile doctrine over the last 25, 30 years has been about using conventional weapons for everything, and nuclear weapons are basically held off as a deterrent force. So we don't have plans on how to use these things in, in, in conventional warfighting. That would have to be rewritten and reintegrated, and that's not as simple as pushing a button.
So right. maybe a, maybe it's a nothing burger, but it's a nothing burger with <laughs> with, with with a little bit of lettuce. Mm. Yep. Yeah. You know my you know what my nothing burger is <laughs> the memo. The memo. The memo. I'm driving home yeah. with uh, okay. with my two year old son in the back seat, listening to a news program, and. I'm aware that he's sort of ambiently listening to the radio too, which is why I make sure I only listen to things that are, you know, kind of PG. But at one point he says, Daddy, who's a memo? <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's right, buddy. Nothing you need to worry about. Uh, so we got, a, we got this Nunez memo that came out. That's my nothing burger. Um, mm-hmm. We've uh, and, if, and the news as of today is that uh, the House has voted or the, uh, committee, the House Intelligence Committee has voted to release the Democratic rebuttal to the Nunez memo. Um, now it will be up to President Trump to set, decide if he's going to allow that to be released or not. That'll be, we don't know if that's whether he will or mm-hmm. not. That'll happen after this podcast. But this memo looks to not at all in any meaningful way fundamentally shift either the Mueller investigation into the Trump mm-hmm. candidacy's potential collusion with Russia over the 2016 election or any subsequent uh, investigations that follow from that. It appears to be a dud. Mm-hmm. That's my nothing burger. Is the Democratic memo also then, by virtue of the first one being nothing, also just kind of more nothing? We or? don't know because it hasn't been released yet. But, is, I mean, what's your, your guess on that? My guess is um, because the first memo didn't have much in the way of truly condemnatory information other than maybe the FBI was extra aggressive in surveilling Carter Page, um, that – the Democratic memo probably just excoriates that and rebuts it, and thereby itself is not particularly meaningful to. It's nothing sauce on the nothing burger. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very tired metaphor at this point. Yes. You know what we should be paying attention yeah. to? Though? At the end, we're going to bury it and move on. What's that? What should we be paying attention to? We should be paying attention to congressional retirements. Okay. All right. Um, Tell me more. Th- this is. <laughs> Uh, heading into the 2018 midterm elections, we have an unusually high number of members of Congress not seeking re-election. Uh, Congress is a great job if you can get in. Uh, the rate of re-election of incumbents is incredibly high. It's very hard to lose an election once you become a member of Congress. Despite that fact, every year every or every election cycle, some members of Congress retire. Sometimes they do that for... Um, uh, personal reasons. They want to spend more time with their family. No, really. I mean, I mean it. They actually occasionally. That's actually family. true. Um, sometimes they have other. They want. To, they want to do something more lucrative. Um, but Bobby usually, man. it's a it's a handful. Um, mm-hmm. We have, if I counted correctly, currently three senators who won't be seeking who are retiring to not seek reelection. They are all Republicans. We have twenty eight, I think twenty or twenty nine members of the House. Who are retiring to not seek re-election, and twenty of them are Republicans. We have a whole bunch of Republicans who, in theory, would benefit from having a Republican president, Republican-controlled House and Senate, mm-hmm. who would want to stay in office, who are instead choosing to retire. Now, it could be for a couple of different kinds of reasons. They could be expecting a big Democratic upsurge in the twenty eighteen election, and that their seats aren't safe. And in a few cases, that's probably the case. Mm-hmm. 
for a few others, they could realize that, hey, at the very least, I've got two more years of a Trump administration, two more years of Republican-controlled presidency, and maybe Republican-controlled Senate, probably. Mm -hmm. And so I want to get, get out while the getting's good, and I can make a lot of money in the private sector by being a lobbyist in the short term, capitalizing on the, on the connections I have right now um, for the next couple of years uh, before potentially the, uh, the Democrats take over. But this is an exceptionally high number, an order of magnitude higher than what usually happens. Mm -hmm. And I, as a political scientist, I'm wondering if that's a harbinger or if it's a changing trend in how members of Congress think about their congressional seats. Or maybe human nature has changed and people like to altruistically yield power now. Is that, <laughs> that is also a hypothesis. <laughs> Probably not a good one. Um, it, I, I'll leave the discussion of human nature. To, right. uh, <laughs> somewhat, somewhat related to that, another one uh, that I think people should be paying attention to is uh, <clears throat> is, is the um, Supreme Court of Pennsylvania just ruled that they do have to redraw their district lines. That was one of my burgers too. Man. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> so yeah, um, basically, and and what makes this particularly relevant right now is um, the Republicans in Pennsylvania had appealed to the Supreme Court and Justice Alito. Uh, basically said that the court uh, declined to review the case. And so that right. means the districts will have to be redrawn. Um, and essentially, and redrawn in advance of the 2018 election. Right, exactly. So what this means essentially is that the Republicans will probably not be able to um, – I can't remember the exact numbers. and I don't. I should have had them. I have them right here. Oh, yeah, there you go. So anyway, it's something in the vicinity, though, of um, the Republicans had like – it was like 13 to 5 or Thir something. 13 of the 18 congressional districts in Pennsylvania are held by Republicans, even though uh, Donald Trump only won the state by, what, a couple percentage points in the right 2016 back. election? Yeah. So basically the state has been drawn in such a way that maximizes Republican performance. Right, and right. if you want to hear a nice long explication <laughs> of what gerrymandering is and how it works, I was just uh, say, 538 yeah. has a great like five-part yeah. um Documentary of uh, audio documentary on gerrymandering. They talk about fracking and cra uh, fracking, <laughs> packing. <and cracking. laughs> they might talk about fracking too, but that's an oil drilling. Uh, that procedure. Well, I think they, they actually do a good job of the how complex the issue is because yes. it's. I right. think sometimes when when people talk about it, they um, oversimplify nice. and and yeah. yeah. I mean, I walked out of listening to those kind of with my head spinning. Like I, I'm not quite sure. Right. I'm not quite sure how you solve the problem, but yeah, so, so that that's a really good wreck. Right. Yeah. But we know that gerrymandering is bad in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, many political scientists would argue that it's problematic for democracy. Mm -hmm. It's not the only problem that's causing uh, partisanship in D.C. Just fixing gerrymandering won't fix the problem entirely. Mm -hmm. right. A lot of the, a lot of the problems were something we're doing to ourselves. And if you want, we can talk about the big sort, for example. But and the debate surrounding the big sort, which is this idea that Americans increasingly are choosing to live in places where everyone else votes like them and thinks like them politically. That said, fixing some gerrymandering would probably create more competitive districts, and more competitive districts should lead to more compromising, not compromised, right. but compromising and moderate political candidates. Mm -hmm. And that in itself could be good for democracy. Right. So, yes, I agree with you. I think that's something yeah. we should be paying attention to. And the other thing to pay attention to just related to that is to see how the Supreme Court itself will actually rule on the Wisconsin right. um, gerrymandering case, which is yeah. um, before them right now. They've, they've already heard oral arguments, and we're actually waiting to, to hear them hand down the, the, the verdict. 
So we, yeah, so that's another one to keep. We probably don't expect that verdict for a while. I'm probably not. I mean, you never know for sure, but it's probably yeah. that one would probably be towards the end of. I was going to say that's one of the big term, ones, so they right. probably wait till May or June. So for that yeah, one. that's yeah, that's probably yeah. not for another couple months at least. Yeah. All right, I got all my burgers out there. You guys have some mm-hmm. things we should be paying attention to, or things we shouldn't be paying attention to. Um, I think. I mean, just to you know. Well, the, well, the um, memo itself was, was sort of a nothing burger. <laughs> uh, I think the larger questions of what of how Trump is reacting to these things is something to always keep mm-hmm. an eye on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, basically just w- continuing to, s- to wonder about how we- uh, how well uh, the rule of law itself as a principle is being upheld by mm-hmm. the president and uh, congressional Republicans. I think – All right, political theorist, when you say rule of law, right, what do yeah. you mean? <laughs> so basically – so part of – you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately <laughs> as I'm going to teach a class on constitutional law. But basically, the rule of law is just the idea um, that, well, there are several ideas behind it, but the, but the basic idea is that you have the rule of laws rather than human beings. So rather than having right. a king who can do whatever they want, um, you actually have laws that constrain um, and guide what actually happens in politics. Yep. So essentially, that usually is seen as protecting freedom in a couple of ways. So it protects freedom because it lets citizens know what the rules are so that, you know, you can't just be randomly arrested and imprisoned mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. for a reason, you know, for a reason that you didn't know was there. Um, and the other reason that this is, protects freedom is because it constrains the officials and the rulers themselves. So the ruler can't just throw you in the Tower of London to be tortured for the rest of your life without mm-hmm. a trial and due process and things like that. So, um so at any rate, uh, the big question is, you know, to what extent uh, is President Trump, and particularly since there's some question as to how much he had to do with the memo itself, um, given that Nunez has, um, you know, had some interactions with the White House, right. um, to what extent is President Trump himself actually trying to use surrogates in the House at this point to try to undermine uh, investigations into himself and whether he himself has been subject um, to the laws? Um, and to what extent he is actually trying to circumvent that process of, of himself being accountable to the laws. So that, I think, is the, you know, sort of the thing to mm-hmm. watch um, as, as we look at this. And there was some talk, it sounds like it's probably not going to happen, but that Trump might use the memo as an excuse to fire uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, Rosenstein, uh, who is currently the overseer of the Russia investigation. But that seems to not be happening we'll see right mm-hmm. um especially since the memo itself as chris rightly pointed out is kind of a dud it seems like that that might be dead in the water uh but we'll see um and mm-hmm. that i think is the larger thing to keep track of mm-hmm. and i think i mean connected to that is the question of whether you know to what extent congress has the will to do something yeah. if if trump does cross lines i mean so that's what i kind of wonder with the whole miller investigation right i mean like how bad would it have to be for Congress to actually act? Um, how how obvious does the evidence have to be, right? Um, and, you know, just given the sort of party polarization we have in this country, I, I think it would have to be a pretty high level of evidence before Congress would actually do something about it. Yeah. So um, so that's a concern, too. I mean, it's not that the rule of law is going to disappear and that people are going to get start getting thrown in jail tomorrow, but you can see erosion over time, right, yeah. and where we get a new normal um, new and and even just like sort of the waves of handling the news and the the criticism of fake news really on both sides right is uh, I think also contributing to that right it's harder to know what are facts right and what are the the things that are, are true um, we don't we don't agree on even that point anymore so um, all those things kind of tend toward eroding this sort of idea of rule of law 
Right. And respect for those kinds of political, necessary political institutions like the media mm-hmm. are things that Trump's critics, even critics within the Republican Party, are pointing to yep. as ways that he's eroding the rule of law. Yep. Yes, he's not imprisoning journalists, but his the kinds of criticisms mm-hmm. he's make, he makes of the media, um, the devaluing the devaluing the function of the media is a way of, of that erosion right. per se. That doesn't happen all of, all at once, all overnight. There's not mm-hmm. all of a sudden a rounding up of imprisoning of right. of CNN journalists, but it's a it's a slow slide towards some of those things. Yep. Right, and I mean, just in terms of the slow slide too. I mean, there's been other smaller things like the pardoning of uh, Sheriff Joe uh, Arpaio. Um, just the idea that basically he was somebody who was who was essentially violating the rule of law and was and had been arrested for doing that. Um, and Trump basically pardoned him and said that you know basically this was okay. Yeah. Um, and so that was another moment there. Uh, there's also you mean Senate candidate Sheriff Joe. Yeah, Senate candidate Sheriff <laughs> Joe. Yeah. Um, and so and and you also uh, you know see examples. I mean, one of the lines um, uh, that a couple of folks jumped on uh, that I noticed from the State of the Union was basically the President uh, Trump basically said that he wanted uh, increased authority to fire people within the executive apparatus, mm-hmm. um, and that in itself is uh, is a protection mm-hmm. that's been put mm-hmm. in place since Watergate to try to increase the rule of law um, right. and restrain the President in terms of uh, what they can do to law enforcement at, um, mm-hmm. organizations like the FBI to make sure that they are somewhat independent and able to execute the laws rather than simply executing the will of a ruler or a president. Yep. There's a forthcoming piece uh, in the March issue of The Atlantic by Jonathan Rausch and Ben Wittes. And Rausch and Wittes try to point, th- try to portray themselves to some success as being long-term political nonpartisans. That they've supported conservative issues, they've supported liberal issues, and they've clearly not been activists for either party. And I'll put that aside. I don't know if I buy that completely from the two of them, but their argument is for this reason, because of these consistent violations of the rule of law, that a subset of the Republican Party, the the Trumpists, have essentially captured the Republican Party. And not just the party itself, but um, a rump portion of the Republican voting base really supports Donald Trump as well. Mm -hmm. And what they argue is that this is really bad for rule of law, which is really bad for the American democratic experiment, and that civic patriotic Republicans need to, in the short term, vote dedicatedly for Democrats until to to force the Republican Party to, to, to reform, to force the Republican Party to sort of excise Trumpism. From its uh, from its wings, because as they argued, Trumpism doesn't end with Trump. Sort of this questioning of the rule of law, this questioning of mm-hmm. American civic institutions, doesn't end with Donald Trump. There will be people who will do it even more effectively than he will in the future. And basically, the the America's better with a strong Republican Party that supports the rule of law, supports uh, civic institutions, and and we need to get back to that. And until they can do that, we need to essentially punish them to doing so by voting for Democrats. My concern is actually that because Trumpism has been successful in the short term, that whoever wins on the Democratic side might take a page from the Trumpist playbook. And if the Democrats also begin to reject, uh, um, play fast and loose with the rule of law, then Mm -hmm. we're in real trouble. Which which was already, I mean, in some ways an issue under President Obama, right? I mean, like, in all honesty, like he... 
you know, in his decision to not enforce certain things, right? I'm not going to implement the laws that are on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, he yeah. he laid the groundwork. Overuse for, of signing Trump, statements. Um, overuse of executive orders. I mean, like all that, those kind of things, you know. The, so I think that, I mean, I think that's already an issue. And that's where I would have, like, I think the, the complicated thing here is that neither party has clean hands. I mean, I think the Republican Party in some ways has um, more issues with this right now because of the Trump administration. But I think... Unfortunately, the Democratic Party isn't exactly um, Scott, kind of getting off scot free here either, and that's so. And that's what would concern me about that argument, and I think makes it really complicated to know what's the way out. So. Well, I don't mean to end this uh, otherwise uh, delicious episode on such a <laughs> such a dark <laughs> note, but um, we do need to go. We do have a meeting. Can I end on a, on a question which sort of looks forward to things we'll be looking at? I'm sure right. throughout this year. Which is, at, and it might be now, might be the answer, but at what point can somebody who, say, is maybe interested in politics but never really paid too much attention to midterm elections, like, when when should we really start looking at this, especially outside of the state that you're in, but, like, mm. nationally? Like, like when, when you are to, people... You want to follow the horse race? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the summer. Okay. Because you need to give enough time for all the states to yeah. conclude their primaries and their caucuses and actually get their candidates in the field. Okay, so that will be happening throughout the spring. Yeah. And into th- okay. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, some of them happen as late as, like, August even. So, yeah. um, so we won't really... But by the end of the summer, you should have a yeah. pretty good sense of the field, and also some of those polling numbers will start to yeah. really shape up, too. Yeah, and, like, we're probably not done with retirements yet, too. Like, nope. to Chris's earlier point, there'll be more of those. Um, so, Particularly the ones where the writing's on the wall, where they might be facing a really tough... Either primary yep. or general election, right. yep. and the gerrymandering stuff will be shaking sure. out. Right, by sure, yep. right. All right, friends, we got to go. On behalf of my colleagues here um, at Bethel University, um, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. We will be back on a more regular schedule moving through the spring here, mm-hmm. and we'll have some special coverage of the uh, midterm elections coming up uh, uh, before the semester is over too. So, thanks so much for listening. Go Royals. Mm-hmm.